morning, Woodside Community Church. Glad to be here. Glad you guys are with us. I bring greetings to you um, from, from Dave and Jen. They usually sit right here. Um, they got married yesterday, so they wanted me to say hi. If you see them next week, uh, congratulate them. They're very excited. I know it was, a, it was a wonderful day. It was my first wedding. I was terrified. Um, it was really stressful on me, um, so just so you guys know. I'm still pretty confident that I filled out something wrong in the form, so we'll see if they're actually married. Um, um, but I do want to say a special welcome to our friends from um, First Baptist Church of, of Bath in Maine. Um, some of them are here um, in the first service, and they, they've come with a team to come help us do some work on the parsonage and then serve us. Um, just the little time I've had with them already, I thought, they're a lot of fun. Um, so, so get to know them. Um, you, they're, they're come to do some, some good work. Um, but yes, yeah, thank you. Um, so, we got, we got to get down to work. We're in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Mark 4, 35 through 41. We have just finished a big chunk of teaching. Remember, Jesus, only two extended teachings of Jesus in the entire book. All right, we just finished one of them. All right, so now we're back to, to narratives. Now we're back to stories about who Jesus is and what it is that he is doing. And so far, we've learned a lot about this amazing man. That song was extremely appropriate. All right, we didn't even plan that. I didn't know what they were singing. That was an excellent selection for what we're going to talk about today. More than just a man. That's basically what we're looking at. We've seen that he is taught with a one-of-a-kind authority. We have seen that he has the power to heal the body. He has the power to cast out demons. He's demonstrated his ability to forgive sins. He just continues to amaze in different ways. And he has another way, another way to do it this morning as well. So today we're going to see Jesus demonstrate his power over creation, over nature, and the calming of a storm. And this is actually a new revelation in Mark. All right? This is the first time that Jesus' power over nature is mentioned. Mark is here continuing just brick by brick to, to build his case that Jesus is God. And as we'll see shortly, possessing power over nature tells us a lot about Jesus. And this is just, come on, honestly, this is just one of those great Sunday school stories, right? You love talking about this story kind of with the kids. Everyone likes this story. It's got it all. There's this beautiful, picturesque setting. You've got um, fascinating, complex characters. It's got a good plot. There's an interesting conflict with lots of tension and suspense, and then it's just a fantastic climax and resolution. But then it ends with a bit of a cliffhanger. I love cliffhangers, right? You're kind of left there waiting, kind of wanting a little bit more, wanting to read on. So this short little passage possesses all of the elements that your high school English teacher taught you a good story must possess. It's all right here in these few verses. All right, so through this story, we can learn much about this man, Jesus. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to learn about Jesus, not just for knowledge's sake, but so that we can understand him better and thus love him better and thus worship better. Right? It is as I learn and know more about my wife that I can better appreciate and love her. Right? It is the same thing with God. The more we study and learn and know about this man Jesus, the more we love and want to serve him. But remember, don't forget context. Always context is important. What did we just talk about the last couple of weeks? An entire section of parables about the kingdom. Okay, we did a couple weeks on it. And then he goes straight into this story. And he does it on purpose. 
Right? We, we see here an example of what the in-breaking kingdom does. We're just starting to get like a little bit of a taste of what God's rule and reign entails. Jesus is already starting to roll back the curse. He's already demonstrating his power over the forces of chaos and darkness. He makes a very loud and strong statement in this passage. So let's look at it. Mark 4, 35-41. It's printed there inside your bulletin. This is God's Word. On that day when evening had come, He said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took Him with Him in the boat, just as He was. And other boats were with Him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke Him and said to Him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey? Let me pray before we begin. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Father, right now I pray that your spirit would come and work in this place. Father, I have no ability in and of myself to, to convince these people of this truth. I have no ability to, to change a heart, to convict of sin, or to bring um, dead hearts back to life. So, Father, we pray that you would come and work in this place. I pray that your spirit would take the truths in this text and apply them to our hearts. Father, show us Jesus Christ. Show us his glory and his power and his greatness, Father, so that we will better understand and love and worship Him. Father, it's all about Christ. We pray that you get all the glory. That's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So, our story opens it's the same day of all the what we've just been talking about. He's just taught all of these kind of long extended parables. It's been a long day and Jesus is exhausted. I always made fun of my dad. I never understood kind of pastors. Why they're always so tired. Why they're always napping on Sunday afternoons. Like all you did was stand up there and talk for a few minutes, right? But no, it's, it's, it really is exhausting. Now that I do it, I find out, man, that nap sounds really good. Um, so, so Jesus has been teaching all day, and he is rightly exhausted. So he, he's ready to get away from the crowd. They, they climb into the boats, and they head to the other side of the sea. And then in verse 37, right away, the, the conflict, the action starts to pick up. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Let's pause there. We're on the Sea of Galilee, right? And we are 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Right? This is a massive lake. It is about 12 miles long and about seven and a half miles wide. Extremely large lake. The Jordan River feeds into it from the north and then runs straight out of it in the south all the way down to the Dead Sea. And it was famed for its just wonderful, fresh water. It had these beautiful sandy beaches and just kind of this ridiculous amount of a fish. It fed the entire region. But here's the problem for our four followers of Jesus this morning. All right, the Sea of Galilee, it lies at a very low elevation. All right, it is 630 feet below sea level. All right, that is actually the lowest lying freshwater lake in the entire world, is this one. All right, that in and of itself is not a problem. That sounds really nice. It's, it's warm, good water, nice beaches. That, that's great. But the problem is that right around it, you have all these massive mountains, some of them like 2,700 feet higher than the sea. 
All right, so I'm going to give you a little meteorology lesson here. We're going to learn some weather in our sermon. All right, so you have big masses of cool air up high here, and then really warm, moist air down here. All right, that is the recipe for a perfect storm. Cool air rushes down the slopes. It encounters the warm air there at the bottom, and then it just explodes. And the Sea of Galilee was known for just these wicked storms. All right, just People constantly were, were going down. This, this was a constant occurrence on this sea. Waves over 10 feet high and boats going under. But, but keep in mind that all these men, for the most part, were experienced fishermen. Right? They, they were used to being on this lake at night. They were used to these storms popping up. So the fact that they are so terrified is, um, is, is evidence that this was a real serious storm. Right? We're talking a, a hurricane popping up on the sea of Galilee. Now, I have little experience with boats. I have never been out at sea in the middle of a great storm. If you want to hear boats and sea stories, go talk to my new friend Dave. He's, he's a captain of a boat, does lots of sailing and fishing, but I, I don't know anything about it. But I can imagine that being out in the middle of sea in the middle of a storm is probably the most terrifying thing I can think of. Right? You just no control whatsoever. You are at the mercy of the waves and of the water. All you can do is hold on and hope. Right, and that what is, is what is going on in these stories. I, I would have been scared too. So the, the boat is filling with water. Waves are coming in. The men are panicking. And what is Jesus doing? Look at verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. All right. If you somehow have not been impressed in these first four chapters with Jesus, then surely you are impressed by this. Right, this is, I think, maybe the most overlooked display of the power and the great ability of Jesus in the Gospels. I'm a terrible sleeper. Right? I can be woken by the slightest sound. I like to sleep with a giant kind of jet fan right beside my head so I don't have to hear anything or be woken up. But here Jesus is lying down, passed out on the bottom of a wooden boat that's filling with cold water, all these men running around and, and panicking, and he is knocked out. Now that is amazing, right? Jesus was the best at everything that he did, including sleeping, I think. So, so he's so asleep that the men have to go and wake him. It's filling with water. They're terrified. And it is there at the end of verse 38 that I think that we get one of the most misinformed, ill-advised statements in the entire Bible. They come to him. They shake him. They wake him. And they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care, Jesus? Ridiculous, right? right? Jesus is with them precisely because he does care. Why did Jesus come at all in the first place? A few verses. Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 10, 10. I came that they may have life and have it Abundantly, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Does He not care? He is there because He cares. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? He cares infinitely more than we or these disciples can know. He cares to the point of humbling Himself taking on flesh, taking on all of our weakness and all of our sin and going to the cross in our place. The disciples, they don't get this yet. 
Had they gotten it, they would have never uttered such a ridiculous statement. This man had given up everything. All of the glories of heaven to be stuck in the bottom of a boat with a bunch of his enemies and to love and serve those enemies through his death. But think about it. Are we really any different than the disciples here? God, do you not care that I lost my job? God, do you not care that I have cancer? God, do you not care that my marriage is falling apart? When we accuse God of such things, and we all do, I, I do it as well, but we demonstrate how quickly we forget the gospel. Romans 8.38, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God sent his son to his death for us. How can we even begin to think that he does not care? Like we said last week, the only problem that we had that really mattered, our sin and our separation from God, has been taken care of on the cross. What else do we have to fear? Nothing. We can trust a God who is in control at the cross to be in control in the midst of the little hardships we face in our lives as well. As well. Can you trust Him in the middle of whatever it is that you're going through now? Think of it. Contrast Jesus and His reaction to the disciples and to our reaction um, to storms. Look at what He does in verse 39. I love the simplicity of Jesus' actions here. Have you ever watched, I like superhero movies. I, I was a nerd when I was a kid, so I still like superhero movies. But have you ever watched these things or movies where people kind of have these powers? What do they do? They have to like charge them up, right? They have these like incantations or something they say um, to kind of like get ready, kind of to brace themselves, and then to kind of release their power. Again, the new Superman movie, he, he crouches on the ground, he gets all charged up and focused, all the little rocks kind of start to move, and then kind of he releases the power and takes off, right? Not so with Jesus. He's asleep. He stands up and he says the simplest thing possible. Peace, be still. And that's it. All is calm. In the Greek, it is just two words. Two one-word commands that best translate be silent and be still. And the sea and the winds listen. That's all it takes with Jesus. Which demonstrates to us his unimaginable power. This is not work for him. This is not effort. He speaks it. And it happens. Now I want to pause here and address something that some of you may be thinking. I've said a number of different times that people these days, it, it, it's back in vogue. It's cool again to like Jesus. All right? Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. Kind of all these things. People like the teaching of Jesus. They love the kind of love your neighbor as yourself, turn the other cheek, all that stuff people are good with. They like that he cares so much for other people, constantly kind of feeding them and helping them. That Jesus, yeah, that's good. But when it starts to get to things like this right here, people start getting a little hesitant and they start getting a little bit uncomfortable. Right? People love the teaching Jesus, but they are not okay with the miraculous, powerful parts of Jesus. We, Thomas Jefferson, he was just like this. We had some, we had some weather and now we're going to get some history. Right? Thomas Jefferson, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. He was our third president. He loved the teachings of Jesus. But he so hated all of that other stuff that he said was contrary to reason. So like any good modern man, Jefferson decided, well, I'm going to create my own Bible. 
And it's still called the Jefferson Bible today. You can buy it on Amazon if you want. Don't waste your money. But, but what he did is he literally he took a Bible, he sat down with a pen knife, and he literally cut out all the teaching parts that he really liked, took them and pasted them in another book, and threw the rest of it away. So he made his own Bible of just the teachings of Jesus without any of the miraculous. The, the book ends with Jesus being laid in the tomb. No resurrection, no anything after that. He loved the teaching of Jesus. In fact, for 50 years, from about 1900 to 1950, it was a copy of this Jefferson Bible that was given to every new senator when they were sworn in to office, which is, I think is indicative of kind of just the, the general kind of liberal direction that the church was heading in that time. People loved the teaching of Jesus. They are not so okay with the miraculous power of Jesus. Right, but this is, this is all kind of what we're still going on today. People are uncomfortable with His power. But as we've said over and over again, it's not an option when it comes to Jesus. You cannot pick and choose with Jesus. You can't like His teachings and do away with the other stuff. Because part of His teaching was that He was God. Right? He either was or he wasn't. There's no middle ground. He was God, and he was right, or he wasn't, and he was wrong. And if he was wrong, then he was really crazy, and I don't want to listen to any of his other teachings as well. And the reason I bring this up now is because I want, to, I want you to notice a few things in our story this morning that demonstrate to us that these are actual events, and not just kind of legends that people have created to make Jesus look all cool and, and powerful. One of the general characteristics of an eyewitness account of an event, in other words, kind of one of the general characteristics of a true story, something that actually happened, is irrelevant detail. Irrelevant detail is a sign of a true story. Back then, when they wrote fiction and, and myths and, and legends, they included only details that specifically moved the plot along, where they kind of caught a specific point. So, um, for example... Um, you see here in our, in our passage in verse 36, what does it say? It says, well, there's, there's all these other boats around them. That never comes up again. That doesn't serve any function in the story whatsoever. It is, it is things like this, these extra little details that give us evidence that these are true accounts. Right? This, if you're making up a story, there's no point in including that there are other boats around. It serves no purpose whatsoever. You would only include that if you simply remembered that that what was, was what was happening. It's the same in verse 38. It doesn't matter in the story where Jesus was sleeping or that he was sleeping in a boat or, or on a cushion. That's simply included because it is true. Remember we said that Mark, what is Mark doing? He is recording, he is writing down the memories of Peter's time with Jesus. So he's writing this story down exactly as Peter remembered it, because Peter was there. And so the point is that we have all of these details that point to the truth of this story, which is a story that includes a miraculous display of Jesus' great power over nature. You have to do something with this. You cannot just dismiss Jesus. You, there's way too much evidence that he was who he said he was. You have to do something with the great power of Jesus. But we don't want to. Because we are uncomfortable with such power. We like to think of Jesus with his kind of nicely 
perfectly maintained kind of long flowing hair, right? Jesus had brilliant hair, I think. All kinds of products he must have. He was obviously white according to all the pictures, right? You know, kind of white. He looked like me. And, but he's always kind of had a big smile on his face and this kind of cheesy, welcoming grin. Like, you know, like nice, warm, friendly, kind of cuddly Jesus. This Jesus is he's just nice and he's just easy. Now listen, Jesus is not, he's all of those things. He's not white, not at all. Um, but, but he is all these other things. He's, he's kind and he's loving and he's inviting, but he is so much more. He is powerful and he is omnipotently powerful. It is unmatched, unrivaled power, a power beyond which we can't even begin to imagine. Listen to what I think was one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17. This is a stunning two verses. And Paul writes, for, he's talking about Jesus. He says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Good grief. Do you understand what these verses are saying? That word upholds in the Greek basically just means carry. Right? The verse says that Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the man asleep at the bottom of this boat, carries the universe on his back. He upholds it. He sustains it. And this idea is actually not foreign to kind of some other belief systems. We, we find this in, in Greek mythology. Have you ever heard of this guy named Atlas? Right? Atlas was a titan. Right? And the titans are the enemies of the gods. Right? They're all kind of fighting for who's going to have control and who's going to be in charge. Well, the gods end up winning. Right? They, they defeat the titans, they imprison them, and they punish them. So Zeus, kind of the, the king of the gods, he comes to um, Atlas and he says, your punishment is that you are going to hold up the earth on your back for the rest of eternity. It is your job to sustain this whole big globe. If you go outside of the Rockefeller Center at, at 50th Street and 5th Avenue, right across from St. Patrick's Cathedral, there's this massive bronze statue of Atlas with the earth on his shoulders. It's a fantastic statue. And there's a lot to that statue and to that story. It's this amazing display of power, carrying the world on one's back. But if you're ever walking by, go and look at Atlas. Go and look at the statue. Atlas does not look too happy about the situation. All right? He's just got this grimace. He hates it. It's terrible. It's a punishment. He's being forced to do it. There's this great display of power but there is no love. The Atlas story pales in comparison to Jesus Christ, who upholds not only the world, but the entire universe by the word of his power. The entire universe. Yes, calming this devastating storm by speaking two words is amazing. No one else has ever done such a thing. That in and of itself should fill us with great wonder. But upholding all of reality with a word that is beyond comprehension. That should terrify us. That should really cause us to pause. Think about it. We live in New York City, one of the largest cities 
in the world. I, I haven't been here long enough to be jaded, so I still think, in my opinion, the greatest city in the world. Right? I'm still upset for this place. This is really an impressive city. Right? Upholding New York City by the word of his power would be amazing. But zoom out and look at a map of the United States, and New York actually seems quite small. Zoom out even further and look at the earth from space, and this great city is, is minuscule. You can't hardly even notice it. But at least you know, there's this great big planet, right? That's pretty impressive. The earth, 29,500 miles around the center. That is massive. Upholding that, if Atlas was doing that, would be extremely impressive. But zoom out even further and look at the sun, the largest object in our solar system. It is over 2,700,000 miles around the middle. The sun is so big that you could fill it with one million different Earths. That's how big the sun is. But zoom out even further, and it turns out that the sun actually isn't even that big. All right? We could go on and on up the list, but let's jump to the end. The largest star that we know of is called Canis Majoris. Any, any Latin buffs out there? This is, they work really hard on this name, right? What does that mean? It just means big dog. <laughs> Come on, guys. That's, that's just lazy, I think. But the biggest star is Canis Majoris. It is a red hypergiant star. You could fit a million Earths into the sun. You could fit 9,200,000,000 suns into this one star. It would take 70 quadrillion Earths to fit in that star. And I have no idea what that number means. I have no comprehension of that. Right? And astronomers are sure that there are bigger stars out there. There are billions of stars spanning something like 93 billion light years. Numbers that we just cannot comprehend. And Isaiah 40, 12 says that it is all this that God has marked off with a span. In, in, in the Hebrew time, a span was a, was a hand measurement. Right? The, the NIV translates this verse as saying, with the breadth of his hand, God marked off the heavens. Verse 26 says that God calls these billions of stars by name. Jesus Christ created all of that, and he sustains all of that. It all rests on him. It all collapses and falls apart and ceases to exist without him. Now that is power. That is the one that we claim to worship and follow. He is not our warm, cuddly buddy. He is the king, creator, savior, and sustainer of all of reality. Is this your understanding of Jesus? Have you ever been amazed or awed or struck down by the person and power of Jesus Christ? This is why we've been emphasizing over and over again that the average Christian response to Jesus Christ just does not make any sense. And it just proves that we don't really understand who this man is. Apathy or, or mild interest when it comes to Jesus Christ doesn't make sense. He does not leave that option open to us. You're either amazed by Him, you worship Him, and then you follow Him, or you prove that you haven't understood Him and that you do not know Him. Because look in this story at who He is and what He can do. Even this is tiny little taste of His great power in this one little story should shock us. And it would be no small thing to March readers 2,000 years ago that it is the sea that Jesus has power over. 
in practically every ancient culture, the sea represented chaos, an uncontrollable and terrifying um, power that possessed the potential for unstoppable destruction. Ancient people respected and they feared the sea. It was the source of evil and uncertainty and danger. Chaos and uncontrollable power. And ancient people knew that no one could control the sea except for God himself. And so here we have another evidence that Mark is giving that Jesus is God. In the Old Testament, it is God that is seen as the controller of the natural world. Several times throughout the Psalms, God is spoken of as the one who rules the raging seas. Psalm 65, 5-7 reads, O God of our salvation, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. 89.9 says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. 107.29 says, He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Only God, only the one who created the seas, had the power and the authority to control them. These men in the boat would have known their psalms. They would have known these verses. And that is why their response in verse 41 is so appropriate. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey Him. They're at least just beginning to understand the implications of what has just happened. This man possesses power over the uncontrollable raging seas. Only God possesses power over the uncontrollable raging seas. Who then is this? And you've got to keep in mind that you already know the end of this whole Jesus story. You know who he claims to be. Mark has made very clear up to this point that Jesus claimed to be God. And the disciples here haven't quite gotten it yet. And this slowly dawning realization brought on by this awesome display of power rightly terrified them. And this is the right response to the person and power of God. This is the response that we see throughout the Old Testament. Exodus 14.31 reads, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. When Isaiah encounters God in Isaiah 6, he fears that he will die, that, that he is undone, that all is lost. In Ecclesiastes 12.13 we read, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fearing God is simply the proper response to who God is and His holiness in comparison to who we are and our sinfulness. And the disciples here are starting to get that. They are starting to get a fuller picture of just who exactly this Jesus is. And it unsettles them. Tell me again, have you ever been unsettled by Jesus Christ? Have you ever feared Him? Do you understand the implications of what is going on here in this passage? Because the disciples did, and they were afraid. Now, I want to say one more thing as we kind of draw to a close. Um, I've heard this story preached on a number of times. You hear a lot of guys kind of preach on it. Like, look, Jesus will take care of all the storms in your life if you just trust Him. All right? And listen, in a spiritual, eternal sense, yes, that is absolutely true. But that is not the point of this story. Just think about Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, 23-29, he gives this long list of just the crazy amount of great suffering that Paul had to experience because of the gospel. 
In verse 35, he tells us that he was shipwrecked three different times. There were three separate occasions in Paul's life where the storm got so bad at sea that his boat was destroyed and he says he was left to drift out at sea. Jesus did not still that storm. Paul was nearly beaten to death multiple times. He was stoned and whipped and imprisoned and he was eventually murdered for his faith. Those storms were not still. And as we saw a few weeks ago, the lives of nearly all of the twelve, the closest friends and followers of Jesus from a worldly perspective were absolutely miserable. They all suffered greatly for the gospel and most of them were murdered for it. What about those storms? They were not calm. And I bring this up because I so want to guard against the possibility of you hearing me saying that Jesus is going to come and calm all your storms. He's going to make your life nice and calm and it's kind of this relaxing sail kind of in the Mediterranean. No, that's not promised to us anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere are we told that things are going to be easy. In fact, in the New Testament and with church history, it seems to tell us that sometimes things get harder. And I cannot emphasize to you enough how careful I want you to be about whose books you read or who you watch preach on TV. There is a deadly substitute out there for the gospel that people are peddling to get wealthy. I'm begging of you, please do not listen to anyone that tells you that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. Turn off the TV, throw away the book when someone promises you great material blessings if you just trust in Jesus. I, come talk to me afterwards if, if, if you're not okay with this. But listen, I, I'm so concerned about this that I think it's important. Guys, we've got to stop listening to these guys on TV like Joel Osteen that are promising you great wealth and health if you just believe in Jesus. Because the Bible does not promise us that. Listen to what he says. If you just develop an image of victory and success and health and financial abundance, nothing on earth will be able to hold these things back from you. The disciples must not have been very good at imaging these things because they had none of them. He said, God wants you to live in financial abundance. He wants to give you all the desires of your heart. God is turning things around in your favor. He writes, God is making you a champion. He writes, God wants to increase you financially. But guys, that is garbage. And it is not in the Bible. It is just not true. It doesn't come from anything that he's pulling out of the text. He's just making stuff up. And it is dangerous. Nowhere are we promised these things. What does Joel Osteen have to say to the woman who loses her job and who is stuck on welfare? What about the Christian who is dying from cancer? What about them? God never promises us financial blessing, but he does promise us great spiritual blessing. Listen, this is not your best life now. And praise God that it's not. His best life is to come with Jesus Christ. I beg you, just please again consider Paul's life. It was not easy. He was not healthy. He was not wealthy. And he was not superficially happy. But there was great satisfaction and joy in his life, not because of what he could get, but because of who got him. Are you satisfied with Jesus Christ alone, Himself? Or are you trying to use Jesus to get all of these other things? 
Because the Bible makes it pretty clear that it's about Christ. He is the reward. He is what we are promised. None of this other stuff. And it's dangerous to tell people that you're going to get it. Because then when you don't, and listen, a lot of us won't. That just leads to disappointment and devastation and just kind of disillusionment with this whole Jesus thing. Right? We're never promised financial blessing and security. This story is not about, it's not a promise that all of our storms will be magically calmed if we just believe in Jesus. That's not what it's about. The focus and the emphasis on this story is the person and power of Jesus Christ. He is the focus. We are not. This story helps us to learn to trust in the Savior who does not necessarily deliver us from storms, but who promises to be with us and deliver us through the storms. Christianity is not a refuge from the uncertainties and the insecurities of the world. And in fact, guys, it sometimes multiplies them. Okay, just go back and read your church history. Not a lot of wealth, not a lot of health, but there's a whole lot of Jesus. And that's the point. Jesus Christ. The one that we follow is so powerful. He has so demonstrated His love for us already on the cross that we can trust Him in the midst of the storms that are guaranteed to come. Look at the great power of Jesus Christ displayed to us this morning. He is in control, but He cannot be controlled. Osteen, I'm telling you, just say these words and pray these things and God will give you what He wants. No, you cannot control this man. And that is why the disciples were so terrified. Jesus is even more unmanageable and infinitely more powerful than this storm. A storm uses its power to destroy. Jesus uses its power to restore, to serve, to love, to bring life, to bring His people back into relationship with God. Jesus uses His power for our good. His power is the only power strong enough to defeat the one storm in your life that matters. Your sin and your rebellion and the resulting punishment. We can only satisfy the demands of a just, eternal God by paying for our sins eternally in hell. But Jesus can satisfy the demands of a just, eternal God because He is that just, eternal God. And that's why God's plan is so perfect. Right? As humans, only another human could stand in our place and represent us. But owing an eternal great debt, a debt that we could never pay, only one with limitless power and worth could ever pay such a debt for us. That is Jesus, fully God and fully man, come to stand in our place and take our punishment for us. Remember all the way back, when I first visited back in January, we, we talked about the story of Jonah. And we talked about the similarities of that story with this story. Remember, Jonah is also asleep in a boat in the midst of a terrible storm. Men come to him and wake him and tell him that they're going to die. Their situation requires a miraculous, divine intervention. And they, like the disciples, are more terrified after the storm than during it. But we said that there was one major difference. In the story of Jonah, Jonah comes to the sailors and he says, Take me and throw me into the water. He said, If I die, you will live. And they did. But that doesn't happen here in our story in Mark. Or does it? I think, again, Mark's a masterful writing. I think Mark is purposely paralleling the story with Jonah. 
Because if you take into account the whole book, that's exactly what happens to Jesus. In Matthew 12, 41, Jesus says that he is the true Jonah. And he means this. Listen to you know, Tim Keller's words here. He means, someday I'm going to calm all storms, still all the waves. I'm going to destroy destruction. I'm going to break brokenness. I'm going to kill death. How can Jesus do that? He can only do that because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly, like Jonah, into the ultimate storm, under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice, of what we owe for our sin. That storm was not calm until it swept Jesus away. That is the gospel. That is what Jesus Christ has done for us. That is the real power of Jesus, ultimately displayed to us on the cross and in the resurrection as He frees us from sin and death and gives us eternal life. That's the power. That is Jesus Christ. Do you know this Christ? Do you understand the power of this man and what He has done for sinners? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your perfect plan of salvation, for sending us the perfect substitute to come and take our place. Father, we confess our sin. We confess our unworthiness before you. But we claim um, the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us um, through his work on the cross. Father, we thank you that there is salvation to be found in Jesus. We thank you that he is so powerful and so in control, Father, that we can trust him and even in the midst of the most difficult um, unfamiliar situations. Father, I pray that for anyone in here going through storms in their life, of, of any kind, no matter how great, Father, that you would fill them with your peace and your love. Show them that you are in control. Father, confirm in their hearts the truth of Romans 8.28, that you are working all things for our good. Father, confirm in our hearts that, that if you could be in control on the cross in the middle of the greatest injustice in all of history, Father, that you can be in control in the midst of the struggles and difficulties in our lives. Father, show us Jesus Christ. Show us His greatness and His power. Father, I pray that we would fall further in love with Him this morning. We thank You for this time and this opportunity to, to study Your Word. To You be the glory, Father. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.